Hi, we're Ellen Taylor, and we're here to join you on your journey from pregnancy to birth, postpartum, and beyond. Here on the podcast, you'll get interviews with birth and parenting professionals, birth stories, and educational episodes to get you feeling confident, supported, and empowered on your journey to and through parenting. Welcome to Birth Reimagined. Hi, I'm Elle Kennedy. I'm a birth photographer and doula based in Orange County, California. Hi, I'm Dr. Taylor Garcia, a doctor of chiropractic, also here in Orange County. Today, we're talking to Madeline Morris. She's a childbirth educator, a certified birth doula, an evidence-based birth instructor, a spinning baby certified parent educator, a personal trainer, and specializes in pre- and postnatal fitness. She's also a certified massage therapist. Well, Madeline, you really do a lot of different kinds of birth work. Is there something specific about birth that has always lit your fire? Like, what are you most passionate about? That's a great question. You know, when I was pregnant with my son, it just literally opened my heart into this whole new journey of wanting to advocate and help women through this incredible journey. And so after I had my son, I went back to school to become a childbirth educator, and that's pretty much where it all started. And my son's going to be 21 in October, and I've been doing it pretty much since um, he's been born. Nice. I, I love that there's so many of us who are in this field who I feel like our own births were like the gateway. And I know that's not true for everybody. I know Taylor isn't a mom yet and yeah. yet here she is with us. But I know that's that seems to be a pretty common uh, theme for a lot of us. So we'd love to talk with you today about consent and advocating. Can you define those two things, those two ideas for our listeners so they really have a good grounding in what we're going to be talking about today and how they're different and how and why those things are important in the birth space? Absolutely. Well, consent is when you give permission for something to happen. But you know, in the birth world, I like to focus on informed consent because it's super important because informed consent is communication between the pregnant person and the provider that leads to an agreement or permission for care or treatment. You know, but in this day and age, you know... It's so important to get the right information and ask the questions before procedures and treatments. And you want to make sure that you're getting evidence-based care, evidence-based information so that you could make informed consent about your care. And that's super important. Yes. Sounds like, sounds like chiropractic. Does it? <laughs> yeah, we have to do the same thing. It's actually legally required to give get informed consent from our patients before treating them. Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of where uh, the birth world sometimes falls a little bit short. They get consent, but they don't necessarily ask for informed consent. They don't always let you know ahead of time what all of the risk factors are or what all of... Um, 
you know, the possible side effects are before they introduce things. Um, and I think, you know, that's it, if it was in any other medical field, any other, you know, part of the medical world, it would be a really big deal. And for some reason, when we approach birth, we approach it as, you know, the doctor's going to make the call. It, it's, it falls on the provider to make that judgment. Well, if we give the provider that much power. Right. And that, yeah, that's what we want to talk about today is, is getting that informed consent back into the hands of the birthing person. Absolutely. And this is why I'm so passionate about my childbirth classes and teaching, because in order to consent to something, you need to have some education behind that. And I think it's important for couples to take a comprehensive childbirth class to learn what their rights are as a, you know, birthing couple and that you don't necessarily need to go along with something that their provider is suggesting. You want to ask questions and get up to date evidence-based information regarding that. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really important too is is knowing that you can ask questions and knowing that you can say no. You are allowed to turn things down. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I I um I urge couples to use and this is really old-fashioned, but the brain acronym, you know, benefits, risks, alternatives, using your intuition, needing time or doing nothing. Mm, I like that. I've never heard that before. I really like that. Yeah, it's a, it's great. So yeah, it's brain. It's been around for a while. It's a great acronym to use and it's easy to remember. So, you know, we want to ask questions before we consent. And, you know, I like having educated people in my class. I love having questions and, you know, answering questions. I, I like curiosity. And, you know, there are many providers that do value that. And some providers that don't because they're on their own agenda. And they're into giving more generalized care as opposed to individualized care. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about how there's like a protocol, like in in emergency rooms, there's a protocol for for births and it's really Mm. hard for them to go off of that protocol because then they kind of panic. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're trying to stay calm for the, for the family. And yet here's like, this is not what we usually do. And it goes everything off the rails. Absolutely. And then that's also where, you know, ad, you know, being an advocate comes in. Advocating is, you know, supporting the values and preferences that you desire in your birth journey. And if you can't self-advocate, that's where your partner comes in. There's peer advocacy where then the partner could advocate for the birthing person. So I, you know, I feel it's super important to be clear about what your values and preferences are so that you're able to advocate for them. If you're not clear about how you want to be tended to, then how are you going to be able to communicate that to a nurse or an OB? 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and how is your partner going to know? They can't read your mind. So you need to have had those conversations with your partner or your doula or whoever's going to be there as your support as well. Because there may come a time during your birth where you can't advocate for yourself. I know during both of my births, when I was in transition, I could not advocate for myself. I did not have the ability to vocalize what my wants and my needs were. Mm-hmm. I was so in my head. And how did that turn out? Um, my first birth was with a midwife at a birthing center and it was good. Um, my partner, Jeremy and I had taken Bradley method birthing classes. Mm-hmm. So we had talked about what I wanted. He knew what my preferences were. He didn't really have to advocate for me very much really because the midwives were very understanding of, you know, what I, what I felt I wanted in that moment, they went with it. And like, you know, towards the end I was in transition. And when I went to start pushing, I wanted to push on my back. And that was something that, you know, I hadn't thought about ever pushing on my back because, you know, when you, when you take the classes, you learn, you know, that's not the best position to be pushing from. It's not, um, ergonomically efficient (laughs) or or anatomically because when you're pushing anatomically that's the one I'm looking yeah because when you're pushing on your back the sacrum which is the door to birth you're closing it and then you're pushing with that external uh, version of your femur which is closing the bottom half of your pelvis it's ridiculous it's old school it drives me up the effing wall yeah, but since your body told you to do it, it worked out well, though, because it was what your body needed to do. Yes. Um, yes, that position is favored in hospitals because it allows the OB the easiest access to the baby, and there's less chance of the baby uh, being dropped or something like that as the baby is being birthed. That being said, um, my first birth was 38 hours. So I was too tired. Mm-hmm. I had been awake for 50 hours at this point and 38 of that in labor with no ability to sleep. Both of my labors, as soon as I went into labor, I could not sleep at all. Um, so I was just too tired to push in any other position. I had to be on my back. Um, my second birth was with, um, Teddy and Teddy was actually born with a congenital heart defect. Um, so I did not have the option to stay with the midwife Mm. that I had been with the first time I had to give birth in a hospital. I had to have an OB. I did not have any options. Um, while my birth and myself were considered low maintenance or, um, low risk, Um, Once Teddy was born, Teddy was considered high risk. Um, So I did not have any of those other options. So um, I had to advocate for myself a lot more. Being in transition and not being able to advocate for myself, I had to rely on my partner Jeremy and my doula, who also happens to be my cousin. And um, they ended up firing my OB in the delivery room about a half an hour before I started pushing. because um, she was not willing to follow through on the things and there was some abuse happening in the delivery room and I will dive much deeper into that in another episode Um, but yeah so I, I definitely think 
that I would not, I was not able to advocate for myself. But even not being able to verbalize, I need this woman out of my room and out of my space, um, they knew my preferences. They saw what was happening and they stepped in and they were able to say, this needs to stop. This person needs to be out of here. You need to find someone else to deliver this baby. And they did. Good for you. Yeah. So, I mean, I, this is one of the reasons, um, that I started this podcast was to help other women know that you're allowed to say no, that, if somebody is not a good fit for you, trust your gut. I should have known. I should have left her care a lot sooner, but I was scared. You know, I had I had this baby who had a congenital heart defect, and that was my top priority was I need to find somewhere that will take this baby. I need to find someone who, del- who will deliver this baby because a lot of people turned us down. Um, but yeah, I should have – I should have stepped up and said something a lot sooner and I didn't, but I had a you know wonderful partner and a wonderful doula by my side who stepped up and advocated for me mm-hmm. and consent, informed consent, advocating for yourself or having support people who can help advocate for you. Um, those are all incredibly, incredibly important topics for me. And that's why this is actually the first topic that we wanted to talk about on the podcast. Great. This is this is the first thing, you know, Taylor and I sat down and we said, what do we want to open with? And I said, consent and advocating. It has to yep. be consent and advocating. Well, you know, it's first super thing. important. Yes. And it's super important to um, find the right provider for you. You know, we're yes. all individuals and, you know, it starts with that and it starts with interviewing OBs, if that's the course, if, if if you were going to deliver in a hospital and receive the hospital model of care, you know, what questions are you asking these potential OBs? What I find is, is that many women do not ask open-ended questions. So there there's, there's a list of, I want, I don't want. And then how are you really learning about this other person? So, you know, let me give you an, I'm trying to think of an example. So, okay. I don't want to be induced. How about asking, you know, uh, uh, the potential provider, what are your thoughts on inductions? When do you do uh, inductions? Do you allow a woman to go to 42 weeks? or So by asking these open-ended questions, you're going to get a feel for this provider and how he or she actually really views birth. Yes. And also, you know, what are your percentage rates? Right. For induction, you know, do you, do you have a lot of patients who end um, – end up in C-sections. Do you have, you know, those kinds of things are important to know ahead of time. They are, but I like getting the, I would ask that later. I find that when you do ask that of an OB right away, they get defensive. Mm, I see. Uh, Like, let's make it, because think about this. When you, when you're starting a relationship, aren't we inquisitive and curious? And that's how we find out about each other. This might not be a friendship. It's a different type of relationship, but this is how we find out about 
the 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 other person by asking open ended questions. Yeah, yeah. I never I mean, thought of that. Yeah. I I I highly suggest it. <laughs> That's awesome. So, how can we advocate for ourselves while still respecting the provider whose job is there to try and keep us safe? I recognize that that is that is fully their intention is. They want everyone to come out of this safe. I know. And that question of yours drives me effing crazy. Because because let me, I'm going to ask you that question. Don't answer it. I'm going to answer it. But just listen to this question. Okay. How do we advocate for ourselves while still respecting the birth professionals trying to keep us safe? Trying to keep us safe? If you go to a hospital and you're freaking you're low risk, what are they trying to keep you safe from? Like, you get what I'm saying? I Okay, mm. so I will say I do have a reason that I asked this. And it's based on my own personal experience. I know that. <laughs> um, but, but, yes, go on. So my experience, I will, I will try to ease into this gently without being too wordy, but I tend to babble. So forgive me. Um, So like I said, I realized that my OB was not a good fit. I should have left her care a lot sooner. And one of the things for me was that she insisted on an IV or a HEP lock. And I have full-blown panic attacks with needles and with anything foreign in my body like that. Um, so it can't, we, we went head to head over this but, on but, numerous it, occasions. Oh, okay. And I recognized that she was coming from a place of trying to keep me safe. And at one point even told me, I was, I was at her office for a checkup and she goes, did you know you can bleed out in as little as 10 minutes? Yeah. And I looked at her and I said, if you don't have confidence in your team to get an IV in me in 10 minutes or less, then I don't have confidence in you as my provider. And so I feel like the respect for each other broke down. And so that's more of where my concern was. But getting back to the question, trying to keep us safe. And also, you know, false evidence appearing real. Why were you going to freaking bleed out? Like, why did she even use that example? I think she probably is coming from a place of... um, I, knowing more about her now than I did at that time, she works with a lot of low-income families. She works with a lot of people coming into the birth space who aren't educated, who don't have that informed part of consent. So if a provider suggests something, they go with it. And so the more interventions you have, we see this in studies across the board, the more interventions you have, the more interventions you're going to end up with. And it's a downward spiral. As soon as you start intervening, you end up with more and more interventions. So I think she sees a lot of scary things or hemorrhaging or people ending in C-sections that maybe didn't have to. So getting back to what we were talking about before is that you were getting generalized care. Now, I'm not saying that this doctor wasn't a great doctor. Every doctor has their audience. We're all raised differently, right? The way we're raised influences influences the medical decisions that many of us make as adults. And, you know, 
But the thing is, is that if you were not high risk, you should not be treated as high risk. For her, she says it is routine. I understand that. Every patient. And yep, I agree with you. I I didn't want that. And I said, this isn't right for me. Right. And then you had that you... You learned from this, and now you know that you could have switched doctors. I've had clients switch doctors at 38 weeks. But many, many couples feel like, oh, my God, it's too late. I'm in my third trimester. It's too late to switch. No, it's not. If you're not feeling good about the connection, or you think that's something like there's like overt, like they want to induce at 39 weeks, there's no really good reason to, you could switch providers. Yeah. And I think people just don't realize that that's an option. Well, let's get the word out, ladies. <laughs> take, take my childbirth class and you're going to freaking know your rights. Yeah. The other thing I didn't know to ask for, for me personally, was I got turned down by a lot of OBs because Teddy would be high risk after the birth, despite the fact that I was not, and the birth itself was not considered high risk. I should have been asking for a perinatologist. I didn't know that that was a thing. Nobody told me Hey, go look, go ask for this. Look for someone who specializes right. in high risk births. Even though you're not high risk, they're more likely to say yes and take you on as a client. Right. So, everybody listening out there, if you are in a weird situation like mine, there are people who specialize in high risk births. You can find them, they're out there. <laughs> And usually those who have high-risk births, they're associated with um, hospitals that have incredible NICUs. Yes, exactly. So you want to go more to a medical center. You're not going to go to, well, there are no little boutique hospitals anymore, but you want to go where they have a known excellent NICU department. Yes, that's actually we I gave birth at St. Joseph's and directly across the street connected by a tunnel is Chalk. And so Teddy was born 20 minutes later was transferred straight over to Chalk because Aww. they have an incredible NICU there. Wow. Yeah. So that's the one in my area anyway that yeah. I know of. <laughs> On the medical side, doctors are also raised or raised in the sense of like they're they go to school and they're trained in certain generations. Mm-hmm. So if that doctor went to school during a generation that for some reason there was a lot of hemorrhaging for whatever reason, they have that sort of, that is kind of Im- implanted in their brain during school to be aware of it. And they kind of learn to be nervous about it almost. Um, it With chiropractors, we're kind of taught a very similar method in the sense that, you know, we were we were trained very rigorously in school how to recognize the red flags for a stroke because before before our generation got into school doctors were or chiropractors were adjusting people mid-stroke and ended up killing them because they didn't recognize the signs of the stroke before they put their hands on the patient mm-hmm. so we, we that was like kind of nailed in dark like really kind of uh, drove it into our heads yeah. to know those red flags so the doctor um before may also have had that kind of thing where the generation that they were going to school in was seeing a lot of hemorrhaging and it's it's just kind of a a a part a thing of the times where you know schools have to be aware of like the biggest issues that they need to 
like the newest biggest issue that their doctors need to be trained against or in prepared for you know when doctors and nurses i mean i get that that's a valid point taylor because it's like you know something traumatic could happen to the birthing person or the baby and that nurse and doctor will carry that to their next patients i get it but you know we also need to take a nice big deep breath and we need to look at the unique individual in front of us and take them in as opposed to bringing that last bad experience and placing it on another person. Very true. No, very true. It's, I guess it's human nature to kind of hold on to that kind of thing. And it's tough. I mean, you know, even for, even as a chiropractor, I adjust a patient and it doesn't actually help them. They get worse for whatever reason you like you feel bad about it you know like you you know that you may have done something that wasn't quite what you needed to do you may have missed a sign and then you kind of mm. got to try and let that go and it's tough to do because you don't want to make that same mistake again yeah i think so also it's it's a balancing act <laughs> it is and you know doctors they don't want to get sued we live in a very litigious society yeah right now Talk about it <laughs> So let's circle back around. So how how can we learn to advocate for ourselves better? How can we learn to advocate for ourselves better? Personally, I think, you know, do you advocate in your life or are, are, are you clear? Are you clear about you and your values and preferences? If you're meek and you have a hard time doing it, then have your partner do it. I think, yeah, I think that's a big societal thing is a lot of us, we don't know how to advocate for ourselves. We don't know how to speak up for ourselves. And to cut you off, I'm sorry, many of us succumb to the uniform. Like we're all, I've had clients like, yeah, yeah, you know, we go through all of these scenarios of, you know, um, you know, where they might have to advocate for themselves in the birthplace. And we get to the hospital, the nurse, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay, all right. There's no questions. They're just mush. And they're listening and saying yes to everything. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what happened to this couple? Like, where did they go? It's the uniform. Once you get into it, though, you're kind of like, I mean, the mom's a little bit distracted. <laughs> They're a little busy. I mean, it is the uniform, but it also is a little hectic time when you get to that point. But I also think that that's part of why it's so important to have a doula or somebody else, another support person who is removed from the situation, who can be there to gently remind you like, hey, do you want to ask any questions before you agree to this? Correct. Or Hey, do you remember? Because I know that was incredibly important for me, having uh, my cousin, my doula there with me um, during my second birth is she was able to really keep us grounded and she was able to help be there as an outside person. Mm -hmm. She was not experiencing the birth. This wasn't her child. It was my child. It was my partner's child. We're very invested personally invested. And yes, she is my cousin, but she's also a trained doula. So she was able to step outside of that and and say, hey, you know, what do you think of this? Like, let's, you know, she was able to ask, you know, the the providers to, hey, can you give us a few minutes? 
they want to talk this over or, Hey, can you, can you wait a few minutes? And she actually, um, you know, we were told, you know, after Teddy was born that Teddy was going to have about 10 minutes with us and then they were going to take Teddy to chalk. And after Teddy was born, Teddy was actually born completely stable. If you had looked at Teddy, seven pounds, 14 ounces, you would have thought this kid was perfectly healthy. Teddy was perfect. Nobody would have had any clue if we hadn't known ahead of time. Right. And so, you know, she stepped in gently and she said, you know, can they have just a few more minutes before you, you know, take Teddy over to the NICU? And they were like, oh, yeah, sure. And so, you know, they let me have about 20 more minutes before they took Teddy over there. And right. So it's, it's not something I would have even thought to ask in the moment. Yeah. You know, I would have, okay, bye, you know. Yes. And that's, that's the beauty of having a doula too, you know, to help the couple. I mean, as a doula, I don't speak up for my clients. You know, I will, similar to what your cousin did, ask you, you know, a, a question, you know, is this what you want, you know, mm-hmm. is it, I, I heard in our meetings that you were expressing something different. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, just get sometimes getting that double check yeah. can be enough to be like, to rem- either remind you because, you know, you, Taylor's right. You are, you are a little distracted. <laughs> you are a little scatterbrained. Um, but also, yeah, you have that – we're trained to say yes to somebody in a uniform. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, sometimes we need that little reminder of, oh, that's right. I can say no or I can ask for more time mm-hmm. or I can, you know, stop and think about it for mm-hmm. a moment. Or I can ask, what are the other alternatives? Absolutely. Because that's another question that we often don't ask is they say, hey, can I do this? Are there any alternatives? Because a lot of time it's presented as, you know, one or the other or yes or no, rather than, you know, here are a few different options, which one is right for you. So do you have any tips on how our partners can can learn to advocate? I know we kind of touched on this a little earlier with um, taking a birthing class together and really making sure we talk about um our wants and needs ahead of time with our partners. Did you have any other tips for how they can actually um, help be our advocates in the birthing room? Well, you know, it's interesting. I just thought of the birth plan and how couples together will formulate this like birth preference sheet. And I think that's like a really wonderful uh, opportunity to get clear on the birthing person's um values and preferences and have discussions around this. Um, Mm -hmm. I also think uh, if a client hires a doula, like I I, I think it's important to go over scenarios that may happen at the hospital and, you know, how or what would you do in that situation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if this happens, this is what I would like to have done. Right. You know, this is what I would, you know, this is my ideal situation if this were the case. Exactly. And, you know, you know, I'll even talk about in my class about, you know, when you first get to the hospital and the assessment. Right. So, you know, they want to assess the mom. They want to put her on a fetal external fetal heart monitor um, and have her lie on her back, which is 
very uncomfortable and I don't know any woman who could lie flat on her back and handle a surge or a contraction. So I suggest to the significant others to have her sit up in bed, you know, let the nurse know, hey, nurse Jenny, I'm just going to, you know, sit her up so she's able to, you know, uh, uh, handle the contractions better. And just take the initiative of doing that and putting her in a more comfortable position. And that's respectfully advocating and letting the nurse know that, you know, hey, you know, we have a say in this and this is how it's going to go. Yeah. And I'd, I, along those same lines with, you know, checking how far along people are, um, I know if you go to a hospital, they are kind of going to insist that they check you at least when you get checked in. But um, if you're out there and you're listening, they don't have to check you again after that. You can you can say no to subsequent checks. So what you mean by checks is so that everybody vaginal aware that, vaginal yes, exams. Yes, yes, a vaginal exam, an internal. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. So I know when I was there, um, you know, they wanted to check, you know, every couple hours. And yeah. mind you, Teddy's birth was fifty one and a half hours. I was at the hospital for a very long time. Yeah. I did so many laps around that birthing wing. Um, but that being said, they want to come in and, and and give you an exam every couple hours. And, you know, we let them do the initial. And I think we let them do one, one more um, because it had been quite a few hours and I had been there for quite a while. Um, and we finally caved and let them do one. But um, – yeah, you can say no. And we did, we did say no to quite a few of them. And Jeremy was able to step up and be like, you know what? No, like we're, we're good. She doesn't need to be checked. You've already checked her in. She's going to have the baby here. It's going to, you know, you checking isn't going to make it happen any sooner. Exactly. And this is, these are questions also open-ended questions, you know, in a discussion you could have with your obstetrician. And I've worked with doctors where they don't do a lot of exams. Once again, it's the style of each individual provider. I've been to births where I could tell the provider had an agenda and where other providers had no agenda and they were just, you know, letting their patient, my client, labor. So... Mm -hmm. Once again, you know, how do we choose our provider? These are, you know, important questions to ask when you're interviewing providers. But, you know, other ways of advocating um, at the hospital is with eating and drinking during labor. You know, the, the, the hospitals to this day still, you know, after a certain point, they don't want a laboring woman to eat. They want to put you on IV fluids when you could just be drinking fluids. Yeah. Yeah. I know um, we, uh, my friend Rose was telling us, uh, we got to, we get to hear her birth story in a few episodes from this one. And uh, she had talked about how she snuck in some food because she was like, I need food. I want actual food. So her husband was able to sneak her in some food to have because they didn't want her to eat anything. Um, so apparently currently some hospitals are get, are being a little more lenient with that. They're getting a bit better with allowing um, food to come in, sort of. Well, what I do, I, I, I prep my couples to bring bring food, bring a cooler, bring that coconut water, 
bring those snacks, bring those little packets of instant oatmeal, bring that almond butter, bring some fruit, bring food so that you could graze through labor if that's what you need. And if they throw a fit, hey, this food is here for my partner. This food is here for my doula. And Uh, trust your instincts. Trust your body. uh, Yeah. When they're not in the room. Well, yeah. You don't necessarily need to be like eating a whole sandwich while the nurse is in the room. I just had a a birth a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) My client with midwives and they were completely fine with her eating. She had a freaking burrito during labor. <laughs> hey, if that's what you want, man. I she was hungry. Nice. And and usually let's think about this ladies. You know, labor's like a marathon and as we know, it, you know, the intensity is gradual, but as that the intensity of the contractions, the surges get more and more intense, our desire for food goes away. It kind of naturally takes care of itself. Yeah, your body I've never met somebody in a trend in the transition phase of labor where they want a, a freaking meal or a sandwich. <laughs> they maybe want a sip of coconut water or water or a cold washcloth on their forehead. But I've never had a woman ask me to get them a protein bar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After the baby's yelled born. Their, yelled their partner, get me my my uh, my craving food now. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then, that's so funny, you know. And another, uh, some other questions though to ask the provider is, you know, do you induce? Right now, there's this craze here in Los Angeles where, and and with COVID, where there are so many 39 week inductions. For for no reason. So why why do some women go along with it, and why do some women say no? So that might be another uh, uh, question to ask a potential provider. There's a wide range in what is normal, and there's a wide range in in where providers put that induction date. Right. And what about even, you know, advocating at the hospital, whether it's you, significant other, or the, with the doula's help, uh, Pitocin for augmentation, you know, that, 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 that you need to really advocate uh, for avoiding, you know, if you... If you're in the early phase of labor, so the early phase of labor is anywhere between uh, zero to six centimeters, the you, you should not be getting augmented. Yeah, there. I mean, most a lot of these places will not even admit you, the midwives, the hospitals, until you're at least five centimeters. So if they're admitting sooner than that and administering pitocin, it seems. It seems counterintuitive to me to that, you know, that woman should probably, that birthing person should probably go back home and, and let her body keep going unless there's a good reason. Well, what about that? What about a woman who feels more comfortable, you know, at the hospital? She wants to do more of her laboring at the hospital. That probably up to the, up to the hospital to, and them to figure out if she can just chill there until it goes through, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, there are many different scenarios. Yeah. And everybody's, yeah, everybody's desires and wants during labor are different. And also, I feel like it's also important to note and to just be aware that, you know, we can set all of the intentions and the birth preferences that we want ahead of time, but it's also okay in the moment to change our minds. Absolutely. You know, I, I had planned this all natural birth and, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't want any medication. I wanted to do it all myself, but you know what? I'm struggling. I can't do this by myself. And I'd like an epidural, please. It's totally, totally okay to change your mind and to change how you're advocating for yourself and to say, you know, partner, doula, whoever, you know, I know I said I wanted to do this by myself, but I need (laughs) medication to help me through that. That's totally okay. Absolutely. And why wouldn't it be? I think there's kind of the stigma. I I see the stigma of like, you know, I, I hear women tell their birth stories and say, oh, you know, I wanted to do it all natural, but they're almost disappointed in themselves that, you know, oh, you know, I, I ended up getting an epidural and like, they almost say it like it's a dirty secret or like, it's, it's like this guilt and shame weighing them down. Like, no, I don't care how you brought this baby into the world. You birthed this baby. It doesn't matter whether you did it all natural, whether you needed medication, whether you had a belly birth, you yeah. did it. Yeah. But there's something deeper behind that. L. For to, you know, carry that burden or fear of judgment. I I think it's because, you know, a lot of women, they, you know, maybe they talk about it ahead of time, you know, oh, I'm going to have an all natural birth. And then to have to come back and say, I I didn't do it or I couldn't do it. Or they, they feel that like, that they're going to be rejected or that they're somehow lesser because they weren't able to follow through or didn't, you know, change their mind and didn't want to follow through with what their original plan is. And I think we really need to normalize in this society that it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to change your mind. If you get new information, you know, with, with one, you know, your first child, you decide to do one thing. And then between your, your two births, you learn new information and you decide to do something different the second time. It's, you know, that's okay. It's, it's okay to change our mind anytime. Yeah. It's like, who can, you know, it's, it's important to go with your flow. And what about that woman who did want to have an unmedicated birth and she's been in labor for 32 hours. She's so exhausted. She can't see straight. She's no longer coping with with the contractions she has to sleep she needs some relief yeah yeah you know so I, I would i think it's actually you know we need to change the mindset a little because say in that circumstance we're actually using an epidural as a tool yeah yes i don't see it as as uh, an intervention we're we're using it as a tool it is a to coping get some yeah to get some rest yeah so all three of us are here telling you listeners it's okay to change your mind it's okay however it is that you choose to have your birth what your birth preferences are those are your preferences and it's okay if you change your mind on what those are yep totally totally absolutely absolutely so we have a couple of things we ask all of our guests on the show uh, Madeline, first, what is your dream for the birth community? 
My dream for the birth community would be individualized care for everyone. Great. I love that. Yes. Yes. Because, wow, what an effect that would have on birth. How wonderful would it be when you sit down with your OB or your midwife or whoever your birth provider is going to be and they ask you the questions? Mm -hmm. What do you want your birth to look like? You tell me Mm -hmm. and let's work together to make that that happen. Exactly. That would be beautiful. Individualized care. And if you're out there and you're an OB or you're a midwife and you do this with your clients, come talk to us. We want to talk to you yeah. on the show. We want to hear what this is like in practice because this sounds beautiful to us. Yeah. I love this yeah. idea. Yeah. And it would also be nice to have more midwifery care. You know, like here we have a UCLA Santa Monica. There's a group of midwives. So yeah. you're being treated by midwives at the hospital and they catch. It would be nice if there were more groups like that in hospitals for women who want to experience that that midwifery care, but don't necessarily want to have a home birth or a birthing center birth. And also it's included, you know, in their insurance. Yes. I believe South Coast Midwifery um, has um, some hospital connections here in Orange County. I, the last I heard, Beach Cities does not offer hospital, but that may have changed. I haven't um, talked to them directly in a few years. Um, but those are the two big ones that I know here in Orange County. Yeah. I'm sure there are other smaller ones as well. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I would love to see more midwives being allowed into hospitals. But like I was saying with, you know, the birthplace at UCLA, they're, they're a group within that mm-hmm. hospital. They're a group of midwives. So they are actually associated with the hospital. They Correct. They are in the hospital. Within That's the hospital. Amazing. Yes. Gotcha. That's yes. really cool. Yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. And I, 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 believe, I believe South Coast is more hybrid. They offer, in, they offer the in-hospital and birth center home birth. Oh. So it's a little different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the other thing we like to ask is what is one thing you're going to do to take care of yourself this week? I think that self-care is incredibly important, not just for birthing persons and parents, but also for the birthing professionals as well. So what's one thing you're going to do to take oh, care God. of yourself? I am so into self-care. I do. <laughs> I mean, that's never been a problem for me. I am big into self-care. Every day I do something for myself. Whether um, um, I exercise five days a week, I drink clean water, I have great facial products, like I am way into self-care. Um, so I, 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 I do it every day. All right. So you're going to follow through on your, your normal routine of yes. self-care stuff. Self-care and gratitude. Mm, yes. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and talking with us. Um, We are so glad to have you. Now, before we go, where can everyone find you? Like your Instagram, your website, anything like that? Oh, that's wonderful. My website is www.onewithchild. So it's O-N-E, the word, onewithchild.com. And 
I'm uh, teaching virtual classes. I've had people from all over the United States in my class, so that would be uh, wonderful. And my IG handle is Madeline Morris One, the number one, Madeline Morris One. All right. So I'm going to link to those in the show notes. So if anyone wants to get in touch with Madeline, follow her on Instagram, check out her website. You can find all of those links in the show notes for this episode. Ladies, thank you so much. Um, uh, This has been an honor and I'm so happy to be part of this with you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Thank you so much for joining us here on Birth Reimagined. If you'd like to join our Facebook community, you can find us there at Birth Reimagined Family. And if you'd like to join our email list, you can get the link to that on the show notes for this episode. Being a member of our email list gets you access to all our freebies and makes sure you're kept in the loop whenever a new episode drops or we have anything exciting to share. Thanks again and see you next time.